0: Well, good morning, family. Good morning. Good to see you guys. If you are a guest with us this morning or a skeptic or a seeker of truth, we are glad you are with us this morning. Uh, Just to bring everyone up to speed, we are in a series in the book of Ruth, and uh, we're going to spend today and next week in the last chapter of Ruth, and that will conclude the series. So uh, just to recap real quick, Ruth's story takes place during a time when God's people are being shaped by the prevailing culture that is around them, the prevailing culture of uh, do what is right in your own eyes instead of being shaped by a culture of redemption. Uh, redemption, uh, we talked about this last week, means the, the rebuilding of what's been destroyed. Redemption means the restoring of, of what might have been lost or even stolen. That's redemption. And so in the scene uh, that Kathy's going to read this morning for us, we're going to see something, guys, that's really beautiful. It's really, really a beautiful thing to see. We get a glimpse of an alternative community, a different kind of culture. We get to see a very quick, very brief glimpse of a small society that is functioning differently than the greater society that is around them. We see this little society that is shaped by the gospel of redemption. So I'd ask you to give your attention to the reading of God's word.
1: Now Boaz had gone up to the gate and sat down there. And behold, the redeemer of whom Boaz had spoken came by. So Boaz said, turn aside friend, sit down here and he turned aside and sat down. And he took 10 men of the elders of the city and said, sit down here. So they sat down. Then he said to the redeemer, Naomi, who has come back from the country of Moab, is selling the parcel of land that belonged to our relative Elimelech. So I thought I would tell you of it and say, buy it in the presence of those sitting here and in the presence of the elders of my people. If you will redeem it, redeem it but if you will not tell me so that I may know for there is no one besides you to redeem it and I come after you and he said I will redeem it and Boaz said the day you buy the field from the hand of Naomi you also acquire Ruth, Ruth the Moabite the widow of the dead in order to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance. Then the Redeemer said I cannot redeem it for myself lest I impair my own inheritance Take my right of redemption yourself, for I cannot redeem it. Now, this was the custom in former times in Israel concerning redeeming and exchanging. To confirm a transaction, the one drew off his sandal and gave it to the other, and this was the manner of attesting in Israel. So when the Redeemer said to Boaz, buy it for yourself, he drew off his sandal. Then Boaz said to the leaders, to the elders and all the people, you are witnesses this day that I have bought the hand of of Naomi, all that belonged to Elimelech and all that belonged to Chilion and Malone, also Ruth the Moabite, the widow of Malone. I have bought to be my wife to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance, that the name of the dead may not be cut off from among his brothers and from the gate of his native place. You are witnesses this day." This is the word of the Lord.
0: Thank you. Let's pray, family. Holy God, we thank you for the Bible. Because the scripture is your word for us. Lord, I thank you for this book because through it you change lives. You save lives. You correct vision. You dispel lies and you give truth. God, I pray that as we've heard your word spoken, that we'd also hear the very voice of God speaking to us and that today you would let these words not be idle words. They're different. Shape us today by your word. God, I pray that you would help me today because I need your help to speak in a way that is focused on pleasing you and nobody else in the room. For you are God. You alone are good. And you are a redeemer And you have great plans for your people. So, Lord, help us hear you. Help us respond to you speaking God. Speak to us in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 Concepts don't change people, culture changes people. If you are a child of the 80s and you remember the, emer- in the emergence of the crack epidemic, then you also remember Nancy Reagan's anti drug campaign. What was it? Just say no. Just say no. It was a simple phrase that authority figures like police officers and parents and principals of school. Schools would repeat over and over to children in an effort to stop them using drugs. I remember that little circle shirt, <laughs> statement in that circle wearing on a shirt. I remember that. They'd say it over and over to, to keep them from doing drugs and using drugs. Simple concept to understand, right? Simple concept to understand. Actually, it was too simple because it did not take into account that Drugs was a part of the youth culture. Youth need more resources than dropping a catchphrase into their school, into their conversations with other kids. And now 30 years later, the Just Say No campaign is considered by many to be a flop. Why? Because culture shapes the lives of people. Mere concepts don't. Just say no did not prepare students for what it really felt like in their own homes to just say no to an older brother that they looked up to who was doing drugs or to a friend that they really liked in school and what it felt like to say no and then be excluded by them. It did not educate students on how they could support one another in peer-to-peer relationships how to talk with one another. It did not provide students with a reason for the answer to just say no. The entire campaign assumed that telling kids the right answer, the right concept was enough to keep them from participating. We need to learn from this as a church, Crossway. We need to learn from this. People's lives are shaped by living within a particular culture not by just knowing the right answers. Many Christians, in fact, there are even whole churches that are content to reduce the message of Jesus to a truth concept that we agree to, but doesn't actually affect their daily life. It doesn't actually affect how the people in the church are treating one another, how they're making decisions with their money, parenting their children, this kind of a thing. It's just a truth concept we agree to, and they're okay with that. They're fine with that. We have a mission statement here at Crossway that our elders created a couple years ago. You guys remember what it is? You should be looking at it because it's in the banner, and we put that out every seven days. We want you guys to get this. This isn't going away, so you might as well get it, right? Right? We are a church that develops disciples of Jesus Christ who have truly encountered the gospel, been changed by God's grace, and are living for His glory. That's who we are as a church. That's what everything we're doing is aiming at. Children's ministry, pulpit ministry, worship team should be aimed at that. It's a great mission. These are wonderful concepts, amen? Grace, gospel, glory, discipleship these are great concepts these are the right answers to the meaning of our life we believe that but when if and when we reduce the gospel of Jesus to mere mental concepts we get this we actually empty the gospel of its power to transform lives so this is a big deal people will look at us, they'll look at us with our true doctrine, our true beliefs, And see, our lives are unaltered. Our lives are not changed. We're still doing everything we always did before we met Jesus. They'll see our true doctrine that we speak out and sing out and see that our lives aren't really bothered by that. Jesus hasn't really messed with our life. And they will look at that. They will look at you and me in Crossway and they will say, you know what? If that's Christianity, I'll pass. I don't even care if it's true, I'm passing because it's not real we cannot be that church crossway we cannot be that church that's why we have the word encounter in our mission statement that didn't happen like by evolution accidentally like we put that in there on purpose right Gospel truth is something people must encounter within a gospel culture. They need each other. Ray Ortland is a former professor of Trinity Evangelical Divinity School. That's where I graduated. He was actually a professor of Pastor John, was he not? You took one of his classes? Great man, isn't he? Absolutely. Oh, man. Uh, not only that, he's right now he's a pastor. He's getting ready to retire in a year. He's the pastor of Emmanuel Church. Emmanuel Nashville, this guy is a wicked, smart theologian, and he is an incredibly humble man, soft-spoken man. He's great. This is what he says uh, in his, his little book called "The Gospel." It's a little green book. Ortland says, quote, "The only answer to one culture is another culture, not a concept, but a counterculture." A church should offer the world such a counterculture, a living embodiment of the gospel. Close quote. So here's the big idea for the message today. If you don't remember anything else that I said today, I want you to really remember this. In order to see lives change, the gospel of redemption must become part of the culture of Crossway Church. Let me say that again. In order to see lives changed, the gospel of redemption must become part of the culture of Crossway Church. So in other words, like what would it sound like to a stranger if they were to come in here on a Sunday or come into a group on Tuesday or Wednesday? Like, What would it sound like to them? You, you kind of think you know what it sounds like, but we hear it all the time. It's kind of like mom's ears, right? They don't hear noise. Because they tune it out. So what would it sound like to a stranger's ears if they were to come in? What would the culture here sound like and, and look like? In other words, what should they hear from our people as we play together and pray for one another and converse with one another that would let them know that they have walked into a redemptive culture? What are those things? You should want to know that. I want to know what that is. And I think that in our text today, in Ruth, it gives us, it, it, the passage gives us three phrases that people should hear and see in us as people of redemptive culture. So instead of making them as points, I've made them more like phrases because I think that might be easier for us to, re, to remember, okay? And I want you to say these phrases with me. You're going to participate in the sermon. You're going to help me preach today, Okay? And the first phrase of a redemptive culture is this I am broken and need help. I want you to say that with me. I am broken and need help. Let's try that one more time. I didn't hear one. I am broken and need help. Very good. You guys sound beautiful. That sounded great. Let's go to the text, verse 9 and 10. Then Boaz said to the elders and all the people this is a public thing, right? You are witnesses this day that I have bought from the hand of Naomi all that belonged to Elimelech and all that belonged to Kilion and Melon. Also, Ruth the Moabite, the widow of Melon, I have bought to be my wife to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance, that the name of the dead may not be cut off from among his brothers and from the gate of his native place. You are witnesses this day. Day. Now, before we get into how Boaz actually redeems Ruth, we need to focus on something that, that we're tempted to skip over. We just want to breeze over this. Who is Boaz redeeming? We get all, like, jazzed up that he's redeemer. Great, that's a good thing he did, but who is he redeeming? We need to dig into that a little bit and not just skip over it. He, Boaz, has redeemed not just Ruth, if you notice what he says, but an entire family that desperately needed rescuing. And he doesn't minimize this fact. He doesn't sweep it on the rug. He doesn't make it a smaller thing than it really is. As a matter of fact, he actually publicly highlights their desperate need of redemption so that no one can misunderstand his actions. He doesn't want just his good deeds to go misunderstood. He's going to explain what he's doing here. Boaz redeemed Elimelech's property. Who was Elimelech? That was Naomi's husband, right, who died 10 years ago in this story. And he kept it from being sold, his property from being sold to someone outside of the family line. Not only that, he's also redeemed the family line through marriage to Ruth. Right? You guys tracking with this? So because he will marry and conceive a son with Ruth, Elimelech will continue to be remembered. So as it was, Elimelech and the entire family, at this moment, they're cut off from God. You guys seeing that? Are you feeling that? Him and his whole tribe is cut off from the people of God. And in Jewish thinking, to be cut off from the people of God was to be cursed by God for sins against him. To have your family name, to have your family land and inheritance to be wiped out and erased from memory, erased from the history books, was to be under the judgment of God. It was a horrible future. It was a horrible destiny to happen to you, and they're thinking. It's kind of terrifying, I think, even today. And some of you that you've been Christians a long time, you know what God promised to Father Abraham, right? What he promised him? He promised him a child, he promised land. He promised that his name. Uh, Promised uh, he would carry on his name and his land. And so you guys get the picture here. Elimelech and his sons were not just literally dead. They were cut off from the promises of God. And they were cut off from the people of God. And this is a big deal. Therefore, Ruth and Naomi, they were as good as dead too. They're just going to take a few years. They were as good as cut off. They were as good as separated. Boaz is giving life to dead men. He's giving life to dead women that could do nothing to give themselves life. And he does not minimize this fact before he does it. Isn't that incredible? Redemption is only for the dead. Redemption is only for the dead. It's only for the broken. It's only for those that are helpless to help themselves. You guys tracking with me? That's the only people who get that. And this is who we were as well, brothers and sisters. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1 and 2. And you were sick. No, that's not what it says. And you were, what's the word? Dead. In what? In your trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. Verse 12 remember why would paul want us to remember this because we're forgetful people we like to breeze over we like to forget about we like we don't want to talk about that we don't want to remember that mention that but he says it's important it's important remember that you were at that time separated from christ alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers for the, to the covenant of promise. Those weren't your promises yet. Having no hope and without God in the world. You didn't have God now and you weren't going to ever have God as it was because of the situation. The gospel says we, not someone out there somewhere, not those bad people out there, We, you, me. We were dead and cut off from God and we could do nothing to change that situation. Dead people can't do CPR on themselves, amen? We were sinful, we were broken, and we were helpless. This is the very foundation of redemptive culture. And church, instead of minimizing our situation, which we are prone to do, we need to admit our situation. We need to remember that. We are actually called to remember that. You guys, the prevailing culture that we live in is one that resists admitting that we need help. You may be feeling that right now. I don't want to do that. I don't like that which is proving my point. We live in a society that says, don't admit you need help. Don't admit that you're in trouble and that you need a rescuer. We live in a culture, an entire culture that calls weakness dishonorable. Pain is weakness leaving the body. And the Marines stole that from the Greek philosophers because they were the first ones to say that, actually. We call it dishonorable weakness is. Our culture thinks that the very notion that we lack righteousness before God and need someone else to supply it is an offensive thing. It offends our sensibilities. I'm not that bad. I'm about not as bad as the guy that was in the news. This is our defense mechanism, and so here's the deal: the resources that that same culture, our culture, we are submerged in, that we live and work and go to school in, the resources that our culture give us to navigate the tragedies of life and the troubles that we face, and the problems that overtake us, the resources they give us are pride and denial. Pride and denial. Just say no. You're not in trouble. You're fine. Just say no. You're not really weak. You can work that marriage out all by yourself. You don't need a counselor. Just say no. You're not really broken. You're whole. Just misunderstood. Just say no. You're all right. Just try a little harder. and you can fix this mess. You can turn this around all by yourself. But the truth is, this doesn't work, right? It doesn't work. You wouldn't be here if you didn't know that. I wouldn't be here if I didn't know that. It does not work. In fact, get this, guys. Don't miss this. It leads to hiding our... When you adopt pride and denial, when you adopt the resources that our culture gives, and yes, Christians adopt this, we're, not like, we're in the culture, right? And when you adopt that, it actually leads to having to hide your weakness, sin, and brokenness. Because I can't have them know who I really am. And here's what's funny about that. It actually separates us from other people because if, if they get too close, then they'll know who we really are. And we can't have that. So get this. It actually makes us more cut off from people. More separated and cut off from the blessing of community. All the while saying that that is good news. But, but a culture of people who are all seeking redemption together is so different. It's like oxygen. It's refreshing. Family, when we all recognize our brokenness, we all recognize our weakness before God, we're actually brought closer together. You can trust someone like that. We're putting ourselves in a place to be rescued because redemption's only for dead people, right? We're actually showing that we're willing and we're ready to be brought Back to life by God. Why? Because we know we need help from God. And we talk that way to each other regularly. I don't have to pull that out of you. we, We talk to each other that way. It's part of just the culture. Redemption culture calls people to come out from hiding. Come out from behind your rock. Come out from behind your mask. It's all right. Come on out. Come into the light. It's a call to stop exhausting yourself, trying to make yourself look pretty and admit your inner ugliness because we all got that operating in us here. Stop lying to yourself and lying to each other because it's exhausting you. Admit you're broken Admit you need to be restored. Redemption culture invites exhausted people to rest from their self salvation projects. Come to me all who are weary and heavy laden and I'll give you rest Jesus says. Some of those burdens are; those are burdens we're putting on ourselves to look good and look pretty and look like we're put together and that's a redemption culture. That's what it sounds like. Again, Ray Ortland is so helpful. He says, quote, the goal is not to make the church safe for sin. This church is not safe for sin. Okay? But it's to make it safe for confession and repentance. That's so good, I want to read it again in case you want to write it down. The goal is not to make the church safe for sin. It is to make it safe for confession and repentance. I am broken and need help. It actually redeems people's lives. Now, that may sound counterintuitive to you when you first hear it, but now just think about it for a second. That may sound like that's beating people down, not redeeming them, but think about it. Think about it. Can you imagine your own child coming to you one day and saying, Mom, Dad, I really messed this up. And I need help. <laughs> can you imagine that? You can help someone who does that. Could you imagine your spouse actually recognizing when they sin against you? You don't have to bring it up. They came to you and said, You know what? I sinned against you. And I need help because I don't know how to beat this. Will you help me? Could you imagine that? Would you scold someone who did that? No. Could you imagine your own boss just coming to you and just admitting, you know what, I'm having a rough day. I'm not making decisions real well today. It's been a rough day. Could you just show me a little extra grace? Could you just do what I, I told you to do today? Could you guys imagine that? Who couldn't thrive in that kind of environment of honesty and humility? Who couldn't survive in that kind of a culture? It actually makes us want to be a part of someone else's redemption story because we know they're going to be a part of ours soon. Secondly, redemption culture looks and sounds like this I am loved by my Redeemer. I want you to say that with me. I am loved by my Redeemer. Doesn't that feel good to say that? Let's go to the text, verse 5-6. through six. Then Boaz said, the day, he's talking to this, this other Redeemer that's come on the scene. The day that you buy the field from the hand of Naomi, you also acquire Ruth, the Moabite, the widow of the dead, in order to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance. Then the Redeemer said, I cannot redeem it for myself lest I impair my own inheritance. Take my right of redemption for yourself for I cannot redeem it. So there's two Redeemers that are contrasted here in chapter four. There's this unnamed Redeemer, we don't know who he is, and there's Boaz. Boaz. One redeemer operates out of love for himself and one operates out of love for other. The unnamed redeemer is interested in acquiring the land of Naomi. He's like, oh, free land? I think I might get that. He's really interested in buying the land from Naomi, but then he loses interest once he finds out that there's more to that. There's a rider on that that he's got to sign off on. he also is going to acquire Ruth in the transaction. Which means he's also going to acquire a mother-in-law. Her mother-in-law is going to have to take care of her too. Now, I'm going somewhere with this, but you guys remember what we talked about before. The whole point of marrying Ruth is for her to have a son to carry on the family name and inheritance, right? That's the purpose of this. But not only is there now a financial burden of supporting both Naomi and Ruth, but when this, Ruth has a son, everything that the unnamed redeemer is going to go to Ruth and Elimelech's son. You guys get this? Why? Why is everything going to go to Elimelech's son? Because the son that this man is going to raise is going to be known as Elimelech's son, not his son, That's not his boy. It's a Limelech's boy. That's what everyone in the town is going to call him and know him by. So to marry Ruth means that this man will lose a son as well as his son's inheritance, what he would have given to his son. Right? This also means that the unnamed Redeemer's name will be cut off and remembered no more if he marries Ruth. His line dies so that her line, conti- his, the line continues on, right? And by the way, this is a total side note, but I'm going to give it to you for free. It's, it's, I think it's so ironic that even though he, ha- he, has, uh, that he has no name in the story, even though he never married Ruth, I find that very ironic. He ended up not marrying Ruth, and he still has no name, and he is cut off from the history books. The very curse he was hoping to avoid happened to him anyway. We don't know who this guy is because he doesn't matter. He literally doesn't matter. He's barely a footnote in the story. So anyway, going back, if this man chooses redeem Ruth, he loses his son, he loses his name, he loses his inheritance, and he's cut off. The unnamed Redeemer says, the cost to my life is too great. Deal me out. Deal me out. Boaz steps up. He looks at the same situation and he says, there is no cost too great for me. I'll redeem her. I'll redeem them. Boaz will sacrifice his inheritance that he's worked hard his entire life so that someone weak and broken can have it and live he will sacrifice his wealth so a homeless foreigner will live he will give up his name he will give up his son so another can have his son Isn't this amazing? This is incredible, guys. Why? Why would he do something like that? I mean, there's no law forcing him to do this. This is a custom. There's nothing mandating that he do that. The other guy passed on it. Boaz could pass on it. Why would he do this? Why would he suffer such sacrifice to himself? Why would he not walk away from Ruth's problem like the other guy did? He could have. Here's the reason why. Because he loves her. It's because he deeply loves her. This is no act of mere duty. This is way beyond duty. We're wait, duties in, like in the rearview mirror. This is an act of great love. Amen. Amen. Our Redeemer has done the same for us. Our great Redeemer has done the same for you and for me. The reason there is redemption for us is because there was sacrificial love from Him. And our Redeemer sacrificed far more than Boaz ever did. Our Lord sacrificed his entire earthly inheritance on the cross so that we who were poor could be made rich in his righteousness. Our Lord gave up his only son so that we could be called sons and daughters. On the cross, Jesus accepted the curse of God and was cut off from the land of the living so that you, yes, you, could be forgiven your sins and never die. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not (laughs) perish but have eternal life. Praise the name of Jesus Christ. I love him. Don't you love him? Why did he do this? Why would he do this? There was no law forcing God to do this. Why? Because he loves us. He actually loves you. He loves me. Sinful, broken, helpless people. He loves us. The cross is the greatest proof that God really actually does love us. A redemptive culture speaks this to people who come confessing their sins. Yes, you are loved by your Redeemer. There's one more phrase that we really need to see and we need to hear here at Crossway. I am being made into the people of God. Just you say that with me? I am being made into the people of God. That's great. Let's go to the text, verse 11 and 12. Then all the people who were at the gate and the elders said, We are witnesses. Get this. May the Lord make the woman. May the Lord make the woman who is coming into your house like Rachel and Leah, who together built up the house of Israel. May you act worthily in Ephrathah and be renowned in Bethlehem and may your house be like the house of Perez who Tamar bore to Judah because of the offspring that the Lord will give you by this woman. God loves us as we are, but God has no intention of leaving us as we are. And you need to know that. We need to know that. God loves us as we are, but he has no intention of leaving us the way he found us. He's going to leave us better than he found us. After all, he is a redeemer, right? He is a restorer of life. The Lord is making us into something. Us. Not just you as an individual. Us. Crossway. Into something. He is building something with our life. It's called the people of God. When the townspeople and the elders see that Boaz has redeemed Ruth, they pray a blessing of transformation over over her life. It's like a prophecy, but it's a blessing. It's a prayer, and that'll come true in the birth of her son eventually. Boaz was the first redeemer, but he's not the final redeemer in this story because the baby that they have is not an ordinary baby. A baby came through redemption, not the normal way. Through their son, Jesus, the ultimate redeemer will come. God has transformed Ruth in a very important way, brothers and sisters. She has been brought out of isolation as an individual and into the community of God. Did you guys see that? It's amazing. She was once an ethnic outsider, now she's kinfolk. Isn't that incredible? She's family. She was once isolated on her own. Now she is an integral part of building up the people of God, the house of God. We like to say the church isn't a building. That's right, it's a people. We're building the people though. God is building the people and he's using us to do that just like he's using Ruth. The townsfolk place her, Ruth, in the same status as the matriarchs of Israel. They say her name in the same breath of Rachel and Leah. Are you kidding me? This is some high honor for a woman, any woman, particularly a Moabite. Something happened. Something was changed here this day. To be redeemed by God is to be transformed by God. That is what you signed up for. And you follow Jesus, right? Right? More specifically, just like Ruth, God is bringing us into his people. He's not just saving people. He's saving a people. His people. Look at 1 Peter. I've just seen so many interactions between 1 Peter and Ruth this week. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 4. As you come to him, who's the him? That's Jesus Christ. That's the seed of Ruth. Remember what they prayed, that blessing they prayed? Well, think about it when you read this. As you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious, what happens? You yourself, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house into, to be a holy priesthood. Through Christ, you as one little stone are being put into the building. We're part of something bigger than ourselves. We're part of the people of God, the community of God. A redemption culture says that being intimately known is a better life than being anonymous. You guys tracking with me? Being intimately known is a better life than being anonymous, which is what the culture says. You give me my privacy and you leave me alone. And you go your way and I'll go mine. And we'll say hi as we pass. And that's the good life. Redemption culture says, no, we're a counterculture. A redemption culture says that linking arms with others is a better life than stiff-arming people. We should get together sometime. <laughs> a redemption culture firmly believes that belonging to a people Belonging to people is better than isolating ourselves from people. People say, I want to belong. I say, to what? Our culture says, well, isolation, I belong to myself. So if you're going to say you want to belong, then what do you mean by that? That means you're not your own anymore. You give a little bit of that up. And that is good and beneficial and profitable for you. That's what it means to belong to someone. A redemption culture says that coming into God's family is better than looking in from the outside, and that is what we believe at Crossway Church. But we must remind one another that this is God's purpose for redeeming us. It's not just ends with us. There is a purpose past that. I am being made into the people of God. And so we remind ourselves of this truth through informal ways, like one-on-one conversations, like praying for each other. And we remind ourselves in more formal ways, like church membership, like worshiping together as a body on Sunday. I'm not my own. I'm part of the people of God. We need these things in our life. I am being made into the people of God. If Crossway is going to see lives changed, if Jesus is going to be more than a concept, but someone that people encounter here, then we must actively together promote this kind of redemption culture. We need to do this together. I am broken and need help. I am loved by my Redeemer. I am being made in the people of God. Why don't you come with us? Come closer. Crossway, let's do this. Let's pray. Jesus, our great Redeemer, we love you. We love you for coming and redeeming our life. Thank you for giving up your inheritance and giving it away to us. Father, thank you for giving up your son so that we could have him and have eternal life and we could now be called sons and daughters of God. God, I pray that you would help us live out what you're telling us we wouldn't just claim we're Christians. We are not just claim that we're a part of a church. We are not just claim things that are all invisible and hypothetical. But Lord, move us to show that. Lord Jesus, I pray by the power of your spirit and the power of your word that you would make crossway into a church that is a counterculture from the world, that we would check and evaluate the things that we've adopted from our culture. And we would be a counterculture. We would live differently. We'd think and value differently the way you do. Pray that you would help us start doing that today. Not tomorrow. But today in some small way. Would you change us? We know we're not a building. We don't meet in a church building. We're a people. But you are building as people. So help us get to work to building the people of God. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.